Welcome back to Basic Training, everybody. I am your host, Michael Bass, and I want to thank you for tuning in for yet another enlightening show that has to do with something resembling your health and fitness. It's my attempt to bring life and fitness into your world, uh, to make it something that is definitely not something that you have to think about separate to waking up and getting ready for work and going and doing what you need to do on a daily basis. My entire goal with this show, and has been from the beginning, is to tie in uh, things like nutrition, to tie in weight training, to tie in cardiovascular work, to tying in every little aspect of a fitness routine, build that into your daily life so that you don't have to tell the difference between anything. And because of that, I'm going to increase the likelihood that you are going to live longer, that you're going to live healthier, and that the quality of your life is going to be that much more. On our last show, I spent the entire time talking about uh, a theme that we're going with for the next couple weeks here, and that is the idea of injury prevention or what to do when you injure a certain part of the body. It is a brand new year of weightlifting for everybody, and I've dealt with so many people that are just getting into uh, working out for the first time or people that have been reinvigorated because it's the first of the year. I've had so many new faces, and the majority of these people coming in are dealing with you know, biggest loser type challenges, or I'm going to lose X number of pounds in 90 days. What can I do? Or I found this awesome cleansing agent. Uh, can you tell me about it? What's it going to do for me? And I wanted to supplement what you guys are dealing with out there with some of the things that you were, were not going to get. And that is, you know, if you're actually participating in these programs and really giving it all you got, you're going to stand the chance to get hurt. And you're going to be hurt significantly in the first three or four weeks of training if you're taking it very seriously. So the next couple of weeks, like I said, is going to be devoted to us looking at certain types of injuries, whether they are structural injuries, kind of like what I talked about last week as far as dealing with you know your low back and low back pain, sciatica, and things like that, uh, to kind of what we're going to talk about this week, which is going to be uh, the idea of soft tissue injuries and dealing with uh, a lot of myths and a lot of rules when it comes to working out, whether it be cardio, whether it be training or weight training rather. And, you know, some of the things that may have been demonized in the past. And, you know, I just want to kind of set the record straight based on not only studies that show these things, but also in my personal experience as to what is actually worthy of paying attention to and not. So I've just got a couple things that I'm going to throw out to you guys tonight. And you're going to use these tips a lot more on a daily basis than possibly the, the lumbar spine or dealing with sciatica like last week. This is something that you will deal with if you're healthy, and this is also something you will deal with if you are unhealthy. So we're going to start it off tonight with one of the most overly used issues when it comes to weight training. And it has to do with your legs, it has to do with lunges, it has to do with squats. It has to do with the simple concept of when you're doing anything, your knee should never go over your toe. This is more of a case of trainers wanting to teach good lunge form through fear rather than actually teaching you the concept of the physiology of a lunge or a squat. Essentially, and we'll take the lunge for the example here, essentially a lunge is a leg motion in which you're either going to step out in front of you or you're going to be dropping a leg back. You descend towards the ground and you're either going to return that leg to the starting position or you're going to walk forward, which is also known as a walking lunge. 
Trainers are known for inventive names of things, as you couldn't tell, so a lunge in which you go forward is termed a walking lunge. Anyway, ever since I've been a trainer in to, to be honest with you, ever since I've been in into fitness, you know whether it was uh, watching the TV shows on ESPN. I don't know if anybody else out there did that. This was uh, the workout shows that were on at six and seven a.m. It's a guy standing up showing you how to do aerobics. It's this other couple showing you how to weightlift. Anyway, I would watch these, and one of the most prevalent things they would talk about is that when doing motions like this, the knee doesn't go over the toe. So I've always heard this statement. And the fear is that if someone's descending towards the ground with too much force on their patella, uh, there would be a danger in a possible tearing of a tendon or a ligament or something just due to excess force. And so, you know, as a safety precaution, we always tell a client, when you're stepping out and dropping, make sure the knee doesn't go over the toe. Well, unfortunately, there is just not one single study out there that can back up that thought as far as it actually causing injury. Now, if you're listening to this and you actually have said study available, please send it to mbays at me.com, and I will never, ever, ever talk about this again. So, But send it to me, because otherwise, we're going to go into kind of what I talk about. And you know, while the rule of never letting your knee go over your toe may have no actual injury prevention backing, it, it's still a good principle to teach. It's not required, mind you. But I do understand the concept of why we teach it that way. I'm not a huge fan of it because this is getting you thinking of your lunges more as a hip-dominant motion rather than a knee-dominant motion. And that's kind of what we really need to be focusing on when you're talking about the physiology of a lunge. All leg motions, except stationary leg curls and stationary extensions and possibly the exception of some calf work, need to be thought of as hip-dominant rather than knee-dominant. Because not only will it help you engage underutilized muscles like the hamstrings and the glutes, but it will keep the force of the motion in the proper place. Because it's the force coming down on the knee that produces the majority of the damage that we're worried about. If you're going to get something injured, it, it's not good to focus all of your energy down on one little point, especially as you're coming down towards the ground with all of that force. And in my case, you would have dumbbells or a barbell on your back. It, you know, The physical relation to your knee to your toe really doesn't have that much to do with it. It's when you're coming down, are you coming down with a forward angle or are you coming down straight to allow the hip structure to take the majority of that force? And so if you have a trainer out there or you know, if you're working with me or one of our staff or anything like that, that's kind of what we're hoping that we could teach out of this is I don't want you to just pay attention to a stupid rule. I don't want you to know why something breaks. I want you to know how something should work. I don't think it's good to describe like diseases. Uh, disease is an abnormal condition of the body. Well, you can't tell me how something's broken if you can't first tell me how something works. So I'm aware of all the injuries that can happen when you're doing a lunge, but if you don't know how the motion is supposed to specifically work to begin with, we've got a small problem on our hands. So. That's what I have to say about that one, and I'm always, always, always going to tell you, go with what your body should, what you feel it should do. It should never be a forced motion. It should never be something in which you can tell, this is obviously something wrong, but you know, I, I'm going with the form I was taught because if it looks right, it's going to feel right, and therefore I get good results. That is not always the case. So I know some people are going to disagree with me on that point, however... 
I have had a lot of luck with people doing lunges and really developing the right way once they begin to understand that structure of the body and how the force goes down. So moving on, point number two, another one that I absolutely love, and this is going to kind of go with what we just talked about, is the idea of you should never go below parallel in a motion. And other than the knee going over the toe, this is probably one of the largest concept, larger concepts that I end up coming across. You know, whether it be clients, members, regular people, they ask me about it all the time. You know, do I let my knee touch the ground? Uh, do I lower the weight all the way to my chest? Am I supposed to uh, touch the shoulder heads with this? Am I supposed to let the tension go at the bottom of the motion? And without going into full debate mode about it, I will just simply state what I know to be a fact, number one. And then I'll tell you my opinion on that as well. Much like the knee going over the toe issue, I have not found any evidence that breaking a 90-degree plane or going below parallel or releasing tension from a muscle belly into the joint is detrimental to the body. Again, if you have said study out there that has been conducted, which would be interesting because, you know, quick side note about uh, researchers and things like that, we usually are not allowed to conduct a study with the intention of finding out if something completely hurts and disables a human being. I'm pretty sure that goes against a, an ethics code or two. So, But if you can find one out there, please, embays at me.com, and we'll chat about it. And because of that, I always, 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 and this is where we're going to get into my opinion of how I teach, I always instruct a client to take a move through what they feel is a comfortable range of motion for their body. Now, what does that mean? Essentially, that means that if your natural stride while doing a lunge is to break the parallel mark and let your back knee gently touch the ground, then that's what you should do. Same thing goes for a squat. If your joint structure allows you and even tends to take a range of motion further than what others can do, and that would be dropping down below the parallel marker again, then you should do that. Your joints will let you know where the range of motion is supposed to stop other than that, we're going to let gravity and your sense of safety really be your guide. Now, I know a lot of you out there are probably looking at that and going, you know, th that just can't be right. You know, what if I get a really heavy weight and I let it, you know, s smack and pull me to the ground? That's where we come up with this idea of control. As long as you are guiding that motion and you are not feeling any extra resistance to stop at a certain point, you should not stop at that certain point. If your joint wasn't meant to move through that range of motion, it would not move through that range of motion. Your leg will only extend to the 180-degree mark. It's not going to bend forwards past the leg extension mark and come up and, and touch your thigh. It's just not going to work. So the joint structure is meant to be trained through that full range. Now, it is important that you actually think and conduct yourself in a smart way so you don't break anything. But artificially trying to reverse the force of a joint can actually yield a much larger chance for injury due to the fact that you will not have the added benefit of some cool things called Golgi tendons and spindle fibers. That's a shout out to all of my ex-fizz people that are listening to this right now. You guys wanted me to get more sciencey, so here you go. Uh, the Golgi tendons and spindle fibers, they help you return your muscle belly to a stable position after being lengthened due to an eccentric force. And yeah, I'm where I used all kinds of cool science words right there. Uh, I got some flack uh, from a couple of my fitness nerds out there <laughs> saying I'm trying to dumb down the show just a little too much and make it too simple, even though that is the idea. 
I understand that I can discuss a very complicated subject matter. We can go all into sarcomeres and Z-lines and eccentric and concentric forces. We can talk about type 2A, type 2B fibers. We can talk about uh, fast oxidative glycolytic stuff. I can go as science-y as you need me to go all day long. But the reality is a lot of people just want to know how to be healthy, how to look good naked, and really, how do I get and work this into my life without it being so overbearing that I just want to quit? And that's why I'm here. If it takes me taking a very complicated idea, like a Golgi tendon and spindle fiber, and being able to break that down and tell you that's that little stretch. If you were to take your finger and pull it back and then let it go, how it snaps back to normal, that's what a Golgi tendon and spindle fiber do, basically. They're the end points. Uh, they prevent the muscles from tearing. Uh, there are little warning signs that pop up. Uh, so when you're fully extending on something and you're allowed to pull back, you actually get a little bit of a boost from all that stuff contracting back and wanting to go back to its tonus or resting state. It's kind of like a rubber band. When you stretch it out all the way and then it starts to come back to normal, at the very edges of that pull, you get that bonus of the returning to the motion. And that's more or less what your joints go through when you're going through that full range. So I always instruct clients to go through that full range unless it feels bad or detrimental or you just don't feel comfortable doing it. So I know that may go or fly in the face of some of you other trainers out there or what you may have been taught in the past, but this is how Mike Bays teaches his people. And by and large, uh, my injury count is uh, not exactly the worst in the world, and I definitely have created some really, really, really good bodies out there. So, um, you know, food for thought. And moving on from that one, this is actually amazing that I wrote these the way that I did because they're all flowing into one another. Uh, the next one is the idea that you should stretch before you warm up and the idea that that's going to prevent an injury. And this used to be our way of thinking way back when people would wear leg warmers, ankle weights, and headbands, sweatbands. I think it's a legacy product left over from the 80s that just hasn't totally left the mainstream yet. And the reason is because, I mean, it, it, it makes you feel like you're doing something even when you've gone from a total resting state to wanting to be active. Like if I just got dressed out and I'm going and hitting the gym floor, the first thing if I do, I mean, you know, pop a leg up and try to do a runner stretch and get a hamstring stretch going. The reality is that if you begin a static stretching routine before your muscles are warm, then you will actually have a greater chance of causing damage to those muscles, not less. You're taking a cold muscle and you're beginning to stretch it. And you're going to take something that's not very pliable and you're going to try to pull it past its normal resting state. That is not a recipe for winning, boys and girls. And in fact, I do have a study uh, to back this statement up. And you know, feel free to check it out on the website. I'll post it up for you guys so you can read it. And it's not, again, you know, it's not a study conducted to see how damaging we can be to human beings. It was the idea of what is going to be better. It's the internet, John. I, there was an awesome sound that just popped up, and I just got the look of death. No, I just didn't know what it was. You're on the computers, there's dials and buttons everywhere. It's got to be something cool like that. Anyway, back on topic of stretching. <laughs> the idea was not to, to see how bad we could hurt people. The idea was to see what would be better. Could we get a better stretch in the beginning of a workout when we're cold? Or could we get one with the idea that I'm going to submit to you now, which is if we were to do it at the end of a workout? 
And, you know, they found out very easily that you will get a much better stretch, be much more flexible at the end of a workout as opposed to the beginning. So instead of getting dressed out, rolling to the floor, and deciding you're going to go pull a hamstring trying to stretch in front of all the pretty ladies out there, what you should do is begin with a very slow incline walk or an elliptical stride. And you want to get your base heart rate up for about five or ten minutes. It's my traditional warm-up. Then... You can go into your awesome stretching to make yourself all limber. Truth be told, if you were to just do your traditional warm-up and then convert over to your strength or cardio workout as normal, you're going right into it, you're not even going to do the stretching. Then you go to your stretching at the end, you will actually be incredibly much more flexible going into the very end. Because the reality is a, a warm muscle is a more pliable muscle. That will let you get the most bang for your buck when you go to start a good stretching routine. And you must always remember to stretch. I don't recommend it in the beginning, but at the end, it's, it is, and, and this is coming from a guy, for, for the longest time, I was as flexible as, as a rock or like a really, really, really stiff iron pole. It was terrible. But working on that in the past couple of years has really helped me with my injury prevention. You know, if you were listening to the show last week, you know that I have three herniated discs, uh, L4, L5, and S1. And they give me grief like nothing else. In fact, I'm just now completely over a flare-up that I had right after Christmas. I had laid off working out for a little while, and I went back in right when I got back home and started my lifting routine based on my training log. And I zinged that thing so bad, and I mean, it was terrible. Couldn't sleep, leg was throbbing, foot went numb, all of that. It lasted about three and a half weeks. And because I was stretching, though, because I was limber enough to be able to allow the hamstrings to stretch back out, I could stretch the low back, I could actually do, you know, do full-on hands to the floor with straight legs. I really feel that because of that, it helped me recover much faster. You know, three weeks for me is incredible. It used to be six weeks, eight weeks, you know, could count on, you know, three months worth of time even before that flare-up would actually go down. And this is with, uh, you know, 800 to 1,000 milligrams of ibuprofen at any given time. So you really want to engage in this, but definitely don't, don't learn a stretching routine until you do it the way I want you to, which is at the end of your workout, not the beginning. And finally tonight, we're going to get to one of the best topics that I can remember writing about, and that is the idea of Epsom salts. I got funny stories with this, actually, by the end of this. <laughs> it's the idea that an Epsom salt bath will help you heal faster or prevent future wear and tear. This is this is an old school recovery method. I don't know if you know what Epsom salt is. Epsom salt is something called magnesium sulfate. And the way that it works is that, you know, most people don't know too much about it one way or the other. They just know they feel good once they use it or, you know, their coach after football practice or whatever said, you know, get some Epsom salt, it's going to help you recover. The reason is not necessarily the Epsom salt itself. Uh, because the, the way it works is you dump it in a bathtub and you fill it up and you go sit and you soak in it for about 20 minutes. And the Epsom salt actually, or the magnesium sulfate, absorbs in through the skin and blood levels of magnesium sulfate rise at that time. Well, magnesium works very well with two other minerals that are in the body, and that'd be calcium and zinc. Now, when all three of these are in harmony together, that they all have the relative ratios that the body works well with, your body basically gets a reset button. It feels better. It recovers faster. It's the idea of a multivitamin. You know, it, and I may be breaking a lot of your hearts out there. 
But every time you eat a multivitamin, you are going to pee out at least 95%. And I am being extremely nice about that. It's probably closer to 99% of the actual stuff that's going in the body. And the reason is because your body is very self-regulating. It knows what it needs at any given time, and it does not handle huge overages, and it doesn't handle huge deficits of anything for any given period. Uh, take water. If you don't have enough, you're going to die. It's a deficit. But if you were to overhydrate, what happens? Bladder fills up, go to the bathroom, it's gone. Same thing with a multivitamin. But same thing with calcium and zinc. Their levels tend to stay in the body a little bit better than magnesiums do. So if you can find a way to absorb more of that in, in a big, easy situation, like just laying in a bathtub for 20 minutes, which also laying in warm water after you've had a very hard workout just feels better because it, because it just feels better. I mean, there's really no reason to that one. But if you're getting the magnesium soaked in at that time, and then it matches up again with the calcium and zinc, and then everything is working in this magical halo of harmony, your body gets better recovery. And as a side effect of Epsom salt, it actually helps you sleep better once it has gotten the levels risen back up, up to the calcium and zinc as well. So you can also do this if you want to in, ingest it. Do not ingest magnesium sulfate because here's where the story is going to come. But if you actually take a multivitamin, they actually have calcium, magnesium, and zinc as a supplement. I don't recommend a ton of extra supplements, but if you were to take one of those about 30 minutes before you go to sleep, you will actually have probably the best sleep of your entire life. And you can find them in the grocery store. You can also find them online. It's a product called ZMA. I took it a long time ago, and it, it really does. It will help you sleep well for uh, a really, really, really long period of time. So I recommend that one. But the story is with magnesium sulfate, Epsom salt. It's also a laxative. I don't know if you know that. It works by pulling in water to the system. So let's say you were to take a spoonful of it. It will take all of the water from basically the interstitial fluids of the body, and it will dump it in into the digestive tract. And it, the story was that obviously I was looking for something to to move some protein through. I it was an awful situation, and I mean we always run the risk of things getting bad when we talk about protein getting stuck in digestive tracts. But I mean I think it had been something like four or five days. It was absolutely atrocious. So uh, a friend of mine said, you know, if nothing else has worked, you really should try some Epsom salt. It, it should work very gently, very easily. You should be fine. So I bought some. Hey, I read the back label, said, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. So, you know, you take four tablespoons of this, you stick it in some water, and you drink it and wait six hours, and, you know, magic's going to happen. Except that it should not have been four tablespoons. It should have been four teaspoons. And it doesn't take six hours, just so you know. It actually takes about an hour and a half. And I, I don't know. I'm not going to describe it to you in exact terms. Just understand that whenever it hits, and you know that moment. It, for all of you who have seen Dumb and Dumber, it's the moment where Harry, not the Jim Carrey character, but uh, Jeff Daniels, Harry, and he's driving in a car. And all of a sudden, you hear the stomach gurgle and growl, and you just get this look on your face that just goes, oh, no. And when that moment hits, you had better get ready for about eight hours worth of awesome. And that is my Epsom salt story. 
Everything worked out fine in the end. I am still here to talk about it, but it definitely is a, at least a 10-pound drop in case you were wondering. So, and that's, I know that's exactly how you wanted to end a show. You wanted to end a show with me talking about dietary laxatives. How awesome is that? But the idea of it actually should be, if you soak in it instead of eat it, that it will help you recover a little bit better. And whether or not that's because you're actually sitting in a bathtub recovering, or because the magnesium is mixing with calcium and zinc, therefore allowing you to sleep a little bit better, or it actually has some other magical healing property out there, it does seem to help in body recovery. So I definitely, definitely recommend that one. That's actually one of the myths out there that is really true. And so that that's one of them that I highly recommend for you. Uh, you definitely don't want to do a hot bath, though, right after a very hard, hard workout. You definitely want to give it at least a couple days, let the soreness set in. I know it seems counterintuitive, but you got to remember when you are sore, you're suffering from DOMS, which is delayed onset muscle soreness. Your body is actually injured. It is swelling. So all of that soreness, all of that fluid that's getting into the legs, if you were to heat it up, you will cause more swelling. And causing more swelling is going to make a lot more pain happen for you. So you want to give it a couple days, make sure the body's kind of on the mend, and then you start dealing with the Epsom salt. That will make you feel much better, I promise you. But until then, if you use ice, it'll take the swelling down, and it'll feel 10 times better that way. So, guys, that's all I have for you tonight. You know, very, very short and sweet. I do want to invite you to listen to next week's show. We've got a really special treat coming your way, and I think you guys will really enjoy a lot of the information I have to share for you. I'm not. I'm going to keep it all under wraps again uh, until that moment, but I guarantee you, tune in next week. It is going to be one of the best shows I've done yet. I'm really, really, really pumped and really excited for it. And uh, I, again, I, I thank you guys so much for listening in and allowing me to do this and actually enjoying some of the information that I'm, I'm getting out there. If you want uh, to get in touch with me, you can email me at mbaes, B-A-E-S, at me.com. You can check out the website at basic, B-A-E-S-I-C, training. It's basictraining.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Michael Bays, and I'm sure I've got other social media out there. You can go Facebook, Basic Training. You can go Google Plus, Michael Bays. You can go to Flickr, Michael Bays. You can go to all that kind of stuff. It's all on the website. Go there, and all that should be in one centralized location for you. But until next time, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed everything. I hope you eat well and train hard. Good night.